Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. This episode of The Observatory is sponsored by Blurb, where your ideas become great books. Designers can use Blurb's plugin for Adobe InDesign. You can print one copy at a time, get delivered in 7 to 11 days. Learn more at Blurb.com. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. On our last episode, we talked about images of refugees fleeing places like Syria and Eritrea. Where do those refugees go when they get to Europe? They've been put up in former banks and barracks. They've even looked into using Tempelhof Airport, which is part of Tempelhof Park in Berlin, site of the Berlin Airlift. In Macedonia, they've set up 50 flat pack shelters actually designed by IKEA. Michael, have you seen these shelters? Um, yeah, I've seen pictures of them at least, and they um, really look pretty remarkable. Uh, um, IKEA um, claims to have uh, designed them with uh, uh, input from refugees and refugees. Which is, I think, the real story here. I mean, I think yeah. the fact that it's not a top-down, you know, parachute-in uh, torpedo move, but in fact a, a really collaborative um, experience where, where they're getting feedback from the people who are actually living in them. Yeah, and not one of those... Um, I mean, top-down moves are moves nonetheless, but I think as designers, we're so accustomed to sort of, a, um, uh, you know, designers kind of like thinking, well, there's a design solution to this, and by its nature, it has to look designy. And I think uh, every a lot of times when designers are approaching these uh, social crises, they'll do something that simultaneously sort of solves the immediate problem, but also kind of looks cool in a way. Looks cool. Kind of, I yeah. can't agree with you more. I think that, yeah. and you read about these things, and this is not to denigrate in the least the efforts of people who are interested in uh, design for social innovation and social entrepreneurship. But I think in this case, I mean, there is a dire need for these people to have housing, and uh, you know, so the IKEA, which has. Um, a foundation. It's a nonprofit called Better Shelter. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. put a link to this on our site. And and these things, I mean, they cost more than tents, but they have some functionality. And of course, they're meant to endure. I think the estimate is three years uh, longer in more temperate climates. Yeah, and they have a. They can have solar panels. They have, a, I think, very importantly, doors that lock. I think. Uh, a lot of times the uh, the most uh, dehumanizing aspect of uh, being without a home is not just kind of the uh, the creature comforts that we associate with uh, with homes, but actually just the, the the deprivation of privacy, you know this the sense that like your your life, everything you do is totally public. And I think actually having even modest places that you can kind of like lock the door on and kind of create a place for you and your family is really, really important. And interestingly enough, if you look at pictures of these things, um, although they're not designed to be sort of like uh, uh, showy, look at me, designy um, things, they have a kind of functional, matter of fact beauty that I think is one of the things that people tend to admire about IKEA. I don't think, pe- you know, IKEA bookshelves and things are, uh, um, you know, are designed, you know, first and foremost to kind of uh, support your books for a while at least. And I think these things have really been designed to first and foremost just answer their. Uh, uh, their functional requirements, and I think they do that with a with a real um, degree of elegance. What is their proximity to the latrine? What is their proximity mm-hmm. right. to uh, you know other uh, other buildings? Do they do it by family? Do, it, do they do it by community? And so it it calls into question, I think, not only questions, uh, not only um, issues of architecture and design and stability, and uh, but really uh, kind of. F- 
how people use buildings. What's program? Yeah. What's called program in architecture, right? Wait, like how? What is the sort of continuity of a building in context with more buildings and more buildings and, and weather conditions and so forth? Yeah, and what I'd be interested in seeing uh, is whether or not over time, even over a relatively short period of time, um, whether these places get customized by their users to make them feel more personalized, more um, more lived in, and actually to begin to restore a, uh, um, a sense of beauty and sense of place. Now this sounds like uh, we're kind of like leapfrogging over uh, um, you know, from the bottom of, uh, of of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the top, but I think that uh, um, what's really interesting is that in 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 all cultures, you'll find that people, even um, regardless of how sophisticated or how quote unquote primitive their uh, living accommodations are, um, it, very early on, um, people will start making uh, gestures towards kind of creating a sense of beauty and imagination. Just the, just, and, and I think these things, in a way, are really interesting blank canvases for that. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to come back in a month or two months and sort of start to see um, uh, families actually not just simply um, kind of living within the, uh, uh, the blank space provided by IKEA and these refugee organizations, but really inhabiting them and trying to make them uh, actual homes. There's a great book I remember reading in college by a French writer named Gaston Bachelard, who wrote a, the book was called The Poetics of Space. And The Poetics of Space, it's a wonderful title, The Poetics of Space, and in it he talked about this concept of shelter. I love the fact that this IKEA foundation is called Better Shelter and that it really comes down to that question of, you know, the roof over your head, the basic fundamental needs of what it is to live and and have privacy and have security. Then a lot of it comes down to the materiality of these things. They're not the only people to have experienced uh, the, the timely issue of needing to reach out to create shelter conditions for uh, people who are homeless. She, uh, the 2014 Pritzker Prize winning architect Shigeru Ban uh, did this for earthquake victims in Nepal. And there are others. Um, but what do you think of uh, Facebook's, uh, in, in particular Mark Zuckerberg's concern <laughs> about bringing internet to these camps and, and whether whether working with the UN to actually create a connection for refugee camps is, is a move that needs to happen right now? Well, I mean, one thing I find interesting about uh, um, Zuckerberg and uh, Facebook's uh, uh, the initiative that they declared with the UN General Assembly uh, was that um, both in the case of Facebook and IKEA, that private companies essentially are stepping into the breach to launch initiatives that uh, I think 50 years ago, 60 years ago, would have been thought to have been clearly the purview of uh, of governments or you know world organizations you know and instead we wait for IKEA to save us we wait for Facebook to save us now in the case of um, uh, you know for internet connectivity for refugees you know th- there's a meme that's kind of going around that kind of takes uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs which I referenced earlier which is uh, um, the psychologist's famous sort of um, uh, pyramid chart that kind of shows food and shelter at the bottom and self-actualization at the top and sort of his premise was that you had to satisfy uh, you know each one of the one each like a lower level of, uh, of needs before you can progress to the higher ones and uh, someone just adapted that by simply writing Wi-Fi at the very base of it all meaning that uh, before as a prerequisite to food shelter clothing anything else we just needed to make sure we could take out our iPhones and uh, and uh, be connected that way. So it sounds preposterous, but I actually think you can make a case for it. What do you think? 
in the courtyard of the General Assembly, you know, they were actually demonstrating pieces of this drone. You know, so here, here's the thing. They need to build this mammoth drone to be able to beam Wi-Fi connections to places that don't have any, right? Mm-hmm. So this thing is as big as a Boeing 737. It's solar-powered, right? It's, it's a brilliant conceptual, futuristic, perhaps altruistic idea. And, it, you know, to people like Zuckerberg and Bono and philanthropists who are behind this petition, uh, you know, which describes the Internet as an enabler of human rights, the ability to have an infrastructure that is Internet-powered, giving them the capability, these people in these shelters, the, the ability to do lots of things that are probably important. Why take away that right, right? I mean, I, I, I get it. It seems like an odd thing to be putting before we figured out the food and shelter and health care, public health care needs. Um, but I think the, what's very interesting politically, culturally, is that the resistance to these efforts is not resistance based on we're putting the cart before the horse and let's get them shelter and clean water first. It's all about privacy rights in these respective nations. And that's, I think, a, a very compelling argument that, that we should follow because it's, it's technology preceding important human needs, public health needs, for example. But at the same time, it's getting it's, what's going to stall it isn't the fact that Angela Merkel of Germany thinks that it's you know, inappropriate or anyone on the UN, uh, the committee facing this, is, thinks that it's not uh, the, the decision that needs to be made this week, but in fact how it plays into their own respective cultural limitations about free speech. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that privacy issues go hand in hand with the, uh, um, you know, the more universal these uh, networks become, obviously, uh, the more privacy issues become. But doesn't it seem weird that we're looking yeah. at privacy issues about locks on doors and privacy issues about free speech in the same conversation I know. in a refugee camp? I mean, it's kind of, it is kind of preposterous when you think about it. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, um, there's a history of, um, you know, of civilization, actually, that has to do with uh, our ability to communicate with each other. And, uh, you know, as our, our ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors, cave people could only kind of gesture and grunt at each other, so they had to be within um, earshot and eyesight of each other to communicate. And then when written communication came up, you were able to kind of communicate a little bit further. When uh, uh, broadcast communication came up, you were able to kind of really do it. And each one of those steps kind of permitted a, uh, um, you know, the establishment of larger communities, of cities, of states, of nations, and everything else. And I think um, the world we live in is that ultimate one where uh, connectivity is necessary. So I could, see, you know, I could, I could make a counter argument if you sort of, where, you know, if you're a refugee and somehow being in touch with a network that can connect you with your family, with people that you know, with people that could help you, with, uh, um, you know, Yelp-type reviews about what the best place is to kind of cross over to here or the best way to uh, uh, circumvent a complicated bureaucratic setup. I mean, I think more, you know, access to information, trusted information from people you know and people um, who share your concerns actually is what, you know, provides structure to social movements, really. And I think um, uh, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, indeed, on one hand, we're talking about uh, flat pack shelters that are going to come in cardboard boxes and kind of, you know, be uh, uh, set up in a few hours to put a roof over people's heads on one hand, and the other hand, drone-enabled digital networks that sort of a uh, seem, you know, like they're out of a scary kind of future. I think that is, we live in the future, and I think both those things have to coexist. And now, a word from our sponsor. 
Our show today is sponsored by our friends at Blurb, and for any of you attending the AIGA conference in New Orleans, there will be some great Blurb publications on view in the bookstore there. And Design Observer has a new publishing imprint, Observer Editions, and with Blurb, we just published two small books of our own, as well as a new quarterly magazine and the 2014 50 Books, 50 Covers Annual, all of them using Blurb's plug-in tools for InDesign. So you can stop by and see the 50 Books, 50 Covers exhibit at the AIGA conference, and representatives from Blurb will be on hand to answer all your questions on Friday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. You can learn more about this at Blurb.com. The books we do at Observer Editions are made out of paper. Now, when the Kindle came out um, way back in 2007, there were all kinds of predictions that paper would go away, that we'd all be reading books on screens 100% of the time. Um, There's this new essay on the website Aeon by designer Craig Maud, and he talks about how he's fallen out of love with the Kindle and gone back to reading on paper and how e-books haven't evolved as much as one might have hoped. Um, Jessica, do you are you a Kindle fan? Are you uh, an iBooks fan? I'm actually not an i uh, an iBooks Kindle fan, but the essay I thought was was very well written, and he goes back and forth quite a bit between his love of paper. I mean, a real designer's love of the handheld physical object. Uh, he talks about uh, one of the things I, I love that he talks about in this was that the, what what is essentially called the front matter of the book and the pacing that that a designer very thoughtfully orchestrates from cover to end papers to half title and I was reminded that my my husband when our children were little I once heard him reading to them and I heard him reading aloud Alice in Wonderland cover Alice in Wonderland half title. And, you know, they were like three and five at the time. I was like, Bill, they don't really need to know this yet. But they did. All rights reserved. (laughs) They went to kindergarten knowing what a half title was. So, you know, I think Craig Maud, who who splits his time between uh, uh, Japan and the United States – Many of his references come out of this, this his journeys as a traveler, and and his journeys as a reader and traveler, I think, are what bring, brought him initially to the Kindle because it was more portable. But in fact, the beauty and the physicality of the book has never that that kind of thrill has never left him. Um, I do, however, believe that electronic capacities extend our ability to read and and access the world. Uh, in ways that are, are really tremendous. And and this may not be about the physicality of experiencing the book to which the even interactive hyperlinked um, uh, book experience cannot quite compare with, with these beautiful three-dimensional objects. But I do think there's a thrill for me as a, as someone who teaches and uses um, the – I can access the library uh, here at Yale where I teach. Um, and get really any chapter of any book scanned for me. I can, late at night, go through articles that were in the New York Times 100 years ago and uh, download the PDF. And and I see this as a sort of adjunct activity to the physicality of reading, but in terms of what the electronic capacity is to extend your reach, I think that's really where the efforts should be put, and that's everything in terms of... He, he makes a great case, for example, about if you're a Kindle reader, your notes should be able to be added to this larger um, archive or arsenal of information so that you are, it's kind of citizen journalism, it's like reader, citizen reader, mm-hmm. where, where you're combining your knowledge and your reflections and insights with those of other readers and, and how that actually creates its own body of knowledge. But, you know, just like the stagecoach and the car, I think these things are not mutually exclusive. Right, and I think the, um, uh, you know, the act of 
buying a book, of holding a book, of reading a physical book, um, to some people, and I count myself among them, is part of, you know, what you picture when someone says, are you reading anything interesting right now? You know, it's, um, uh, you know, when people talk about the convenience of the Kindle, I often, my, my first thought, and sometimes I, I say this out loud, is that, uh, you know, as someone who um, read uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace over the course of a year, about 10 years after I originally bought it, um, that is like one, that's like carrying like, uh, you know, half a cinder block around for a year. Oh, it's, and, yeah, it's like 20 pounds. But I thought it was sort of like, you know, uh, you know, like Sisyphus. I sort of thought that was like, you know, to, it was, it would be like cheating to kind of like, you know, try to read it on a Kindle and kind of confronting this, uh, uh, this thick slab of paper and slowly inching my millimeter, you know, micro millimeter going through it page by page by page uh, was actually part of the, uh, part of the joy and part of the challenge and part of what I remember as much about, uh, as much as like reading what was in the book when I get lost in his world, I also remember the physical act of kind of having uh, that book to carry around. Now my lovely wife Dorothy and uh, my kids, most notably my brilliant daughter Liz, are very dedicated Kindle readers. And I think they would just view the idea of uh, lugging around some thick hardcover book as a... Uh, um, An antediluvian uh, act. Antediluvian, you know, exactly. That, exactly. Yeah. So uh, my, my um, daughter... Uh, when we were in India, she was about 11. Um, we took two Kindles with us because we were taking a quite long trip all over the world. And uh, Craig Mott in his article mentions WhisperNet, which is the network on which one downloads uh, Kindle books. And we had these Kindles. This was uh, 2009 to 2010. And she was in the back of a van somewhere in the middle of India. I do not know where. And she was working her way through Agatha Christie. And this little voice from the back of the van said, Mommy, I finished my book. Can I download another? And before I could say yes, she said, it's okay, I did. And she like, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, and this happened on the Mekong Delta. This happened, I mean, and it was really impressive that Kindle, these Kindle books, you really can't. So there's something to be said about if that really, in fact, is, is their, their contribution to the reading public, maybe it doesn't have to be the exquisite half-title of Alice in Wonderland or the cumbersome, memorable wonder of Infinite Jazz, but maybe it's just accessible wherever you are, and that is what makes it great. Yeah, and I think um, um, uh, that accessibility is part of it. I think one of, one of the most interesting aspects of uh, Craig Maud's um, uh, essay is that he actually isn't complaining so much about um, reading things digitally on tablets as about the fact that the experience really hasn't evolved in any way since uh, its invention, any significant way. And I think, you know, every, you know, I mean, there's all these kind of like uh, uh, accounts that I think are sort of just uh, uh, speculative about, um, you know, when Gutenberg invented movable type, I mean, that was, on one hand, it was, a, it was a miracle and a great invention. On the other hand, it just was seen as being this kind of grotesque and uh, irrevocably harmful degradation of the beauty of hand-lettered manuscripts produced one at a time by monks. You know, how could a machine actually create anything as nice as that and the world is going to hell, you know? Um, so you got, a, you got more access, but sort of a degradation of the actual act of 
That's an ex that's an excellent point, and in fact, you know, one could say that's happened. People complain that the Kindle doesn't have enough fonts, or that the back backlit screen isn't backlit to the extent of it, of someone's uh, wishes. But in fact, when you think about, we've talked in earlier episodes of, of this podcast about the the wondrous. Uh, skillful design by the team at the New York Times when they do interactive stories. And and these are read on a screen. They're Mm -hmm. typically read on a screen that may be bigger than your phone. Maybe your Kindle is actually the same size as your iPad mini. So you could make an argument, and I will make that argument, that the immersive nature of those stories has to do with type. The type in this case is styled to the to the parameters of the New York Times style, not to whatever the story is. But it's the, it's the gestural, uh, beautiful, uh, I think quite sensitive yeah. implementation of sound and time and video and scrolling that makes for an interactive experience that's extremely rewarding and very memorable. And I would argue that if the Kindle were to go in the way of that kind of experience and one could actually almost experience, not that the, the words of the new Jonathan Franzen novel don't deserve to be read in their entirety, in the order in which they were written. But if one could actually advance and enhance that experience through yeah, yeah. The, the, the things that we have at our, at our fingertips in terms of the capabilities of where technology is leading us, then that doesn't replace, that just amplifies. Yeah, and I think it's, it's actually surprising when you think about it uh, that um, uh, particularly nonfiction books uh, where you know they are based on fact and so... Th- Presumably, there are all sorts of references that the author, him or herself, was accessing to assemble the material. And um, in a in a typical trade hardcover book, you'd have maybe a plate section in the middle. But in a um, you know in an electronic book, you could actually just be linking directly to images, to film, to video, to audio. You know that kind of like were references. I'm reading this fantastic book right now that I recommend very highly to anyone that cares about pop culture by John Seabrook. Um, called the hit called the hit machine and it's about um you know how pop music is made today and there's been a lot of articles flying around about the dominance of uh, this group of swedish producers uh, uh, uh the most notable of which is max martin who now has uh despite the fact that no one has ever heard of him sort of um but uh, they have now Max Martin's got the most number one hits after Lennon and McCartney. No way. I wow. Mean, I mean, like, he wrote everything from I Want It That Way to Backstreet Boys to Baby Hit Me One More Time for Britney Spears to um, uh, California Girls by Katy Perry and pro- writes and produces all these things. He is like the Svengali of pop music. So Seabrook wrote this great book um, about the rise of that culture and sort of a uh, um, how miraculous and amazing it is. It's based on a series of New Yorker things he wrote. And and I'm reading it as a book. And now I've taken to just kind of like having the book in one hand and having uh, my computer and my headphones in the other hand. So when he's talking about some obscure song I don't really remember by Ace of Bass, let's say, and he, and he literally will talk about them the same way that... Um, um, you know, the same way that uh, uh, that a music critic would talk about Tchaikovsky. He like, literally says, you know, it's so- the first sound is this, and then this comes in, and that comes in. And so, you know, I'll just I'll kind of like cue it up on my, uh, on my laptop and listen to it to my headphones as I'm reading about it. Now, imagine how great it would be to do an, uh, an e-version of that book where you could actually, as, you know, where, you know, it would just sort of be all right there, and you'd be able to pull up those things. Now, why isn't that happening? Partly because the market... What's well, happening in your house, and, for, yeah, and, yeah. and my own uh, little 
anecdotes that I'm reading the new book by Patti Smith called yeah, M-Train. Now, here's a, here's a musician who's, whose new life, she lives in, you know, in, in, a, in a small one-room bungalow in the country, and she uh, writes this very intimate book about words and language, which are really important to her. She's a huge reader. The book itself is a slim volume. It's got a beautiful cover design. And uh, it's so portable, I will be taking it with me in my bag to the AIGA conference this week because uh, I don't need, need a Kindle to read it. I have the book. There you go. But, um, but imagine what it would be like to sort of... Uh, yeah, I'm uh, making notes in the margins because I want to listen to the songs she's yeah, referencing. It's thrown true. into that milieu, both yeah. uh, in terms of what she was seeing and what she was hearing and what she was creating. It would be really remarkable. Now, I, you know, if you deal with publishers at all, you know that their margins are just so razor thin that to make the commitment to, you know, for this to be standard operating procedure, it would just, you know, take, uh, it would mean that the ante would get up for every electronic edition. And I think right now what makes it possible is the fact that it's been fairly industrialized, the process by which a, uh, a novel or a memoir or a nonfiction book or anything just simply becomes available on ebooks. And it all has to do with not really adding anything special to it. Uh, uh, when it makes that transition, but instead just taking that content as it exists, presumably as a Microsoft Word file, and just transferring it into the new form uh, so they can be viewed on screen. So somewhere out there is someone who's going to make a transformative experience that will sell like hotcakes, and then uh, publishers perhaps will then learn that uh, uh, by adding value that uh, that um, th that replicates the potential of this different, newer uh, you know, more uh, expressive medium, uh, they might be able to kind of not just uh, create a great experience for their readers, but actually make a lot of money that would justify the additional time and trouble. So you mentioned, Jessica, um, you know, selecting fonts when you're uh, queuing up an electronic book, and we lost last month uh, another uh, real titan in the 20th century and early 21st century font design, typeface design seen in uh, the um, Swiss designer Adrian Frutiger. Adrian Frutiger was born in Switzerland and was known for many things as a type designer, but one of the things I found particularly fascinating was that his father was a weaver. His father was a weaver, and he wanted to be a sculptor, but he was discouraged because his father didn't think that was such a, a remunerative profession. The idea that weaving was a remunerative <laughs> profession was fascinating to me as I read more about Frutiger's life. Um, but when you think about the work of a typographer, what mm. is it but weaving language into society? So we can think of a type designer's work as being about structure and about systems and about grids and about scalability and readability and legibility. But in fact, you know, he was one of the first uh, post-war type designers who was really committed to developing what were known as humanist typefaces. Centennial, Egyptian, uh, Serifa, Versailles, uh, the more commonly known Avenir, which Students everywhere seem to be using all the time, and I do not really know why. Not one of his better ones, but, but really? the ones okay, that he's. Well, the, we'll we can don't. argue that in a minute. <laughs> but one of the um, what he's really known for, I think, probably is a typeface called. Uh, we call it Universe in the United States. I believe in Europe they pronounce it Univer. Um, there, there's a beautiful uh, table that he made, a sort of famous uh, graph that showed how the weights and sizes over time could be used to signal a variety of uses and needs. 
needs and purpose, uh, serve purposes that might be uh, not require as many different uh, changes of typeface, but in fact could be worked out within the same type family. So this idea of a type family being expansive and flexible for the needs of uh, uh, for many different kinds of needs was really what he went on, I think, um, to become quite known for. Uh, and then, of course, there was a typeface called Frutiger, uh, named after himself, um, which one could imagine that uh, would be a meaningful thing to do. Um, it's mostly known on uh, for it's, it's used for airport signage, for example, at, at the Kennedy Airport and at the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. Uh, it is the font of choice. Um, but Univer was the one that was used for the Olympic Games in 1972. It is the favorite of many of my friends. Um, uh, how do you feel about his typefaces, Michael? Univer's is a interesting typeface. When I first began design school, my very first exercise in my very first typography class involved working with Univer's. And it is, I think, the ultimate, you know, kind of logical, rationalist typeface. You know, it's, uh, um, it com it's, in its, in its, when it was introduced, it was all numbered, like the periodic table of the elements. Right, was, right, un right. Universe 55, that was Roman medium. 65 was bold, was Roman bold. Right, um, and it's, it's like 44 different typefaces, yeah, right? Yeah, it's and huge. it sort of and expands out. Then there's like, uh, if you go to 56, that's always italic. 57 is italic condensed. You know, and so, and so in a way... Um, you know, it, that, that chart you mentioned could continue to be expanded because it has within it the rationale for all the other typefaces. And I find it actually, interestingly enough, like very, very um, cold and mechanical as a typeface. I think as opposed to Helvetica. You know, I think, I think it makes Helvetica look quirky and idiosyncratic by comparison. Helvetica, I mean, I think it actually shows why Helvetica, in a way, has a little bit more life to it, in my opinion. Helvetica actually has just some you know, kind of irrational, intuitive choices. Universe just feels like it was machined within an inch of its life. Now, I agree that if anyone is responsible for the idea of quote-unquote humanist sans serifs, which are sans serif typefaces, the ones without the feet, that attempt to kind of capture a little bit of the sense of humanity and organic drawing quality that we associate with serif typefaces, um, I think that Frutiger is, um, you know, was a real pioneer and champion of that and in no case more than the, the eponymous typeface Frutiger that he did for as you said Charles de Gaulle Airport and I think if anything um, Frutiger a great typeface has been in my mind undermined a little bit by the fact that it's so associated with airports and hospitals that uh um, you know, to me, whenever I see anything written in Frutiger, I immediately think I'm going to miss my flight or that I need to <laughs> kind of yeah, have, you know, it's designed have an enema to, or bo something. You both know, of like, these typefaces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's just something about Both of about these it. typefaces yeah. are, are, are neo-grotesque, realist typefaces. They're both influenced by a 19th century typeface called Accidents Grotesque, which I like better than either of them. Me particularly too. It's he very heavyweight, just absolutely magnificent. Uh, but it's it's funny how designers become so persnickety about their their choices about these kinds of things. Uh, I think that um, I mean Helvetica certainly become uh, because of Gary Husfeld's film and because it's it's I don't know I think it's more widely available. It's obviously it comes with the operating system now on most people's laptops. It, it, it's probably more ubiquitous than Frutiger or yeah. than uh, than Univer. But I think that um, it certainly st you still see it uh, all across Europe and not just in oh, yeah, hospitals yeah. And, and airports, but it's it's really is widespread and he will be missed 
No, he will be missed, and um, and I just want to put in a plug for uh, Avenir, which I actually adore. Uh, you do not like it, but I think it's just um, like a really kind of pretty, friendly, kind of almost like high, blank face, sans serif. You know, it's, it has a kind of innocence to it that I think is really sweet in a way, which I find really a weird thing to associate with a typeface. But uh, it was his attempt, actually, Avenir, I believe. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, uh, Jessica. That means future in French. And so I think um, uh, it was his attempt to update Futura and make Futura feel a little bit more friendly. And I'm not sure people looking at it would see the DNA of Futura lurking within, but it's it works for me. What can I tell you? Really more contextually, the word really kind of means more destiny. Well, it's really it's a much is. more poetic word than future. I can't I mean, believe. I, I always thought Futura it. was like yeah. you know Paul Renner designs Futura in 1927. It's all about the machine age. It's all about geometry. It's you know you, you just can picture a Fritz Lang movie just yeah, knocking yeah, you over yeah. the head when you look at it. But Avenir, I mean, it just has this kind of futuristic, much more dreamy, dreamy exactly kind it's of context. Dreamy. Yeah, it's dreamier. Yeah, it's dreamier. I'm imagining people listening to this and thinking, who are these crazy people talking about typefaces that most normal people would find indistinguishable one from the next and ascribing different characteristics like sweetness or anything else to them? Uh, and it reminds me we lost someone else uh, last month, and that is the design writer Phil Patton. He wrote for years for the New York Times, and he also wrote about a dozen pieces for Design Observer. And in my mind, no one was better at close observation of tiny details that actually make a big difference in our lives without most people being aware of them. I couldn't agree more. He was he was also I just want to nerd out here for a minute and talk about how smart Phil Patton was. There in an industry in which the majority of us are educated in art schools and uh, in which, though we may not want to admit it, uh, we are uh, very much fueled by popular culture and maybe not as scholarly in our leanings as we might be. This guy was really capable of going deep, and he had the intellectual chops to sustain that scrutiny as a, as a visual critic, but also he had just a, a really incredible mind. And, and, you know, I mean, this guy went to Harvard. Uh, he was the arts editor of the Crimson at Harvard. He got a, um, a graduate degree from Columbia and wrote his master's degree in comp lit on uh, Vladimir Nabokov. So this is somebody who began his career as a writer, as a reader, as someone who cared about literature and fiction and structure and content. And so I think he came to design with a capacity for looking at the world in a very kind of polymorphous way. And, and, and I think that as much as he went deep, he was able to go wide. And that, to me, is what the best critics are made of. He will be missed. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find links there to things we discussed, including pictures of those refugee shelters designed by IKEA. In between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Blurb for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael, and see you in New Orleans. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.